ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Paul McVerry always wanted to work with animals. Early on, he imagined that would be as a vet. But instead, Paul's role has been more of a bovine chaperone, shepherding highly prized bulls and superior dairy cows around the world so that they can share their exceptional bloodlines. Paul organised the first ever plane load of airborne cattle. And during the flight, he kept an eye on the cows via a flying fox he had rigged up in the cabin of the DC-8. Things haven't always gone smoothly in these international adventures, like the time he and two prize bulls ended up needing a police escort on Broadway in New York City. Hi, Paul. Hi, Sarah. Did you grow up around animals, Paul? I did. I grew up on a sheep and cattle farm in New Zealand and um, I always saw myself in the farming business in some respects. Um, Had a a crack at being a vet and I failed dismally. Why? What happened? Well, it probably wasn't clever enough. I probably hadn't put enough work in at school, I suspect. What was school like? Because you were in in regional New Zealand. Did you have to go to boarding school? I had to go to boarding school. Um, We weren't in the outback as such, but by New Zealand standards, we were a significant distance from a secondary school. So I went to boarding school and, and they were the greatest years of my life. Lots of sport, lots of sport again. And a little bit of study mixed in. <laughs> but not, not quite enough to get you into vet science. No, it wasn't. And I was really annoyed. And I probably should have stuck on with it, but I, uh, I didn't. I, I went and worked on properties and got myself acquainted with the sheep and cattle breeding business. So you went and worked on a, on a stud property. What's yeah. the difference between a regular, a regular property and one focused on, well, on stud animals? Well, uh, stud properties... The job of a stud property is to produce uh, bulls, which would in turn be sold to the commercial farmer, who would then breed his livestock for either for meat production or heifers for ongoing breeding production. So the job of a stud was to provide, you might say, superior genetics, whether it be sheep, cattle, poultry, whatever the whatever the animal type might be. So there was quite a difference. And, and farmers would go to stud sales once or twice a year and buy new bulls or new rams to infuse new blood into their, into their herds. And as a young bloke, I guess just as a teenager, starting to work on these stud properties, what were your duties? Um, I started off, uh, as everyone does, um, doing the lowest jobs, milking the house cow early in the morning, cleaning out pens, all those sorts of things, and then gradually worked my way up to where I became um, the the stud master, which took about three years, which then opened up other doors for me and and actually facilitated me getting a trip to the US. Well, this trip to the US that you were invited to make when you were just 20 years old, what animals were were you asked to bring Um, over to the States from New Zealand? It was the annual bull sales in New Zealand of Aberdeen Angus. And at that time, there were buyers coming from Scotland and the US in particular, where it was particularly fashionable to to have stud-bred cattle and particularly from another country. I always found that a bit amusing myself to say, well, I've bought some bulls from New Zealand, so therefore I had to be significantly important on the 
on the stud breeding scene, <laughs> the I suppose. equivalent of getting a fancy handbag yeah. or something, was it? <laughs> However, um, these, the, the annual sales uh, held in New Zealand this particular year, um, there are a lot of American buyers, and um, one of them happened to be Senator Albert Gore, uh, who was the vice president's father, ah. and, and he was in the Senate in the US. Uh, and he paid top price that particular year for a yearling Angus bull of six and a half thousand guineas. Now, a guinea was one pound one, so that would be the equivalent in those days of two dollars and ten cents, I suspect. Is that a lot of money for a, a bull? It was the record priced Angus bull in New Zealand. The interesting thing about that sale was in those days, no, none of these animals were ever fertility tested. So they were bought purely on their confirmation. So they had to look good and presented well with good disposition and so on. So the senator bought this bull, paid this enormous amount of money without for it. Without really knowing what he was getting. Without knowing whether he had any ability at all in the area of breeding. Well, before he could find that out, the bulls had to get from New Zealand to... Correct. ..to the northeast of the United States. How did that happen? Um, the stock and station company that uh, asked me if I'd be prepared to take them um, said they had arranged for them to go on a city line, British city line boat called the City of Birkenhead, and they would be housed in two wooden boxes on the aft deck of the ship. And uh, so that was fine. I was delighted by all this. I wasn't getting paid for it, but I was getting a free trip to America. Had you been out of New Zealand much before? I hadn't been anywhere out of New Zealand. And um, the journey was amazing, even at the start, I must say, because as we were loading the two bulls, which had to be loaded one by one in a, in the wooden box that they were to travel in, and I had to accompany the bull in each of the, uh, in each box, and a crane would lift up that box, swinging quite vigorously because the animal was moving around, and my job was to placate the animal. Wait, wait, you were in the box with the animal? I was. Whoa! And I can't tell you how scared I was, but I was certainly scared. <gasps> And uh, so we were, the first one was lowered onto the deck quite successfully. The second one uh, we had a little bit of bother with, but um, we eventually got it on board. And I think I got two or three black toenails out of that exercise. Because it's stamping around on you yeah. while you're in the box with it. Correct. And just prior to leaving, there was another development completely unknown to me. Um, there were two other larger boxes on the on the wharf and after we'd loaded the two bulls onto the city of Birkenhead, two racehorses, two thoroughbreds appeared by truck and were loaded into these boxes. One of them, I subsequently found out, was the champion New Zealand racehorse at the time, a horse by, by the name of Mr Mink who was sold to American interest for $72,000. Now, in 1966, Gosh. that was an enormous amount of money. I was just amazed. I said, well, what's, what's going on here? Who's looking after these animals? And I was told by the accompanying vet that the captain would arrange someone in the crew to feed the animals and water them. The crew on board the city of Birkenhead comprised of uh, 60 Indian crew, mainly from Goa, and 14 British officers 
all of whom vowed and declared they would have nothing to do with any of these animals. <laughs> so guess whose approach to look after? Like, I couldn't believe the inadequacy of the whole exercise. However, uh, there I am now going up on the crane two more times with two <laughs> thoroughbreds. Um, no, I didn't get any more black toenails out of it, but it was a fairly scary experience, I must tell you. Oh, boy. Um, so we had two thoroughbreds on one side of the ship and the two bulls were on the other side of the ship. And we set sail. And did you take any of those animals out of their, their boxes? No, I couldn't take them out the whole time. So I had to uh, go in with them every day, um, hose out the boxes, with all the poo, put fresh straw in and make sure that they were happy. We had our moments, I can assure you. A few storms in the Pacific going across to Panama, but um, all in all, it was it was an experience. They took up most of my time, interestingly enough. I found life on board a little boring, and I found the protocols of life on board terribly boring, really. We used to have to get dressed for dinner, for goodness sake. There'd be probably seven or eight officers and myself. The others would be up on the bridge or down in the engine room. And we would sit there and we were given a menu and and, and uh, I found that all quite hilarious. So I was actually more fascinated in going down and eating with the crew down at the very back of the ship, which as they used to be in the old days of cargo ships. And I enjoyed that immensely, having curries and talking to these fellows. They were, all, they were quite interesting people, really. And... Um, I'd done this for about 10 days and I was summoned up to the captain's cabin and told in no uncertain ways I was to eat with the officers and really? not with the crew. So I had no option but to agree, which I did for a couple of days, and I resumed my position of going back and eating with the crew. Did all of the livestock or all of the animals make it safely yes, to America? Yes, we made it through the Panama Canal. Um, we did get buzzed by US planes off Cuba because the blockade uh, that was still going on from the Cuban crisis but we eventually landed into Charleston, South Carolina. And so the thoroughbred horses went off to to their owner and you had responsibility of taking these two very expensive bulls up to Senator Al Gore Senior's place yes and that was where uh, the man I call it my man from Mississippi and his truck turns up he was contracted to take these two bulls and I was to be his passenger. It took probably about two hours for me to recognise that this was going to be a fairly difficult sort of a trip. Why? Because my man from Mississippi knew absolutely everything. He knew every shortcut. He knew every every aspect of the trip. Now, wait a minute. Did he know that or think he knew it? Well, I went along with that and I realised that I thought he was a little bit sandwiched short of a picnic in some respects, actually. <laughs> and I ended up offering to drive on the turnpike. I was unlicensed. but So he was quite happy to accept that, and he climbed into the sleeper cab in the back, and there I am driving along the turnpikes. I'd wake him up when we got to somewhere where we had to go off, and he would take over. We were lost in Baltimore for four hours. We were lost in Washington for six hours. And by this time, my confidence in my man from Mississippi had all but disappeared. We then arrive in the outskirts of New York about 4.15 in the afternoon, probably not a smart time to be turning up, but that's where we were. And I said to myself, that's Manhattan Island. (laughs) What do you know? So we're going across, I think it's the George's Bridge. And 
I saw a sign, Broadway. I couldn't believe it. I thought, holy smoke, that's Broadway. So I said, well, let's turn left here. And he did. <laughs> what happened then? On Broadway, which happens to be, for those that have been there, and uh, I'd never been there myself, but it was a one-way street. What, <laughs> you turned the wrong way? Yes, and we were Broadway. going the wrong way. <laughs> so I'd never been to Broadway, let alone in a truck with two bulls on the back. <laughs> Coming into peak hour, um, bulls are getting a little upset, a lot of roaring going on. My man from Mississippi's completely lost all track of, of, of any common, common sense, I guess is into the profanities again of can't figure out why I've stuffed this up and on and on. And I got out. We had stopped, of course. We were stopped by police. How were the good citizens of Manhattan Well, everyone was gathering around because of this noise coming from the back of the truck. So I climbed up and over into be with my friends who I'd become very close to after spending six or eight weeks at sea with them, then a month in quarantine. And they were the tooting and the, the noise and stuff. They were getting quite upset, so I fed and spent time with them, scratching them, talking in the way that I used to talk to them. As Broadway goes on all around And you. Broadway goes on. I just thought it was hilarious. It was a total comedy, wonderful experience. Uh, we got out of New York about one or two in the morning. How? How? What? Police, police took us all the way out. <laughs> they must have thought there were a couple of prize jerks, these fellas. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> My man from Mississippi, I'll never forget him. He, he was quite something else, really. <laughs> well, you delivered uh, with this exciting detour. You managed to deliver these two highly yes. prized and prized bulls to Mr Gore Senior. Were they worth that money that he paid for them? Well, uh, that's, that's an interesting observation. Probably uh, that was the market for highly prized, supposedly well-bred bulls. However, there was no... No um, fertility analysis at all, which is the way animals were sold. They were sold on confirmation only. So um, uh, as it turned out, the very highly priced bull turned out to be totally infertile. So he went off to another place, which was probably sausages, I'm not sure. But I was, I was, I was shattered about that news. I'd got very close to those animals, very close to them actually. Mm. You spent a few years working on cattle studs in the States and in Scotland and then came out to Australia in the early 1970s with your wife, Adrienne, and the plan was to work with an American breeding company here. That didn't pan out. So what did you decide to do instead? I had always had in the back of my mind, and I discussed this with Adrienne, that I'd like to as a consequence of the travels that I had in Europe, to work in some area of development with cattle in some of the so-called, um, I don't like using the word third world, I think it's a bad term, but some of the countries that we could perhaps be of some assistance in the breeding industry. And uh, I was advised by someone in Community Aid Abroad that I should talk to Len Reid, who at that time was a Liberal member for Holt, I think. And at this, around that same time, there was a, a massive issue with dairy cattle in Victoria and southern New South Wales. Actually, thousands of animals were being killed. Why? Um, it was a mixture of drought and the economic circumstances. Dairy farming just wasn't viable. And there was huge numbers of animals. Huge numbers were, were, were killed and it was just a terrible situation. 
Len Reed had this thought that uh, he had been to India a number of times, that um, and he was a dairy, an ex dairy farmer. That we could look at the possibility of shipping cattle to India to look at crossbreeding with the local indigenous cows. This is at village level, not in a commercial dairy situation. That um, would in turn increase milk production and uh, a better quality beast. So this this was the idea that the the Liberal MP had. Yes. What plan did you come up with in terms of how to get these Australian cattle over to India? Well, it's interesting. It actually goes back to something that I heard when I was in America. I was listening to an agricultural program on the radio and this actually planted the seed, not that I realised that it was going to uh, materialise into what what went on with me, but um, I was listening to a executive from Flying Tiger, that was the name of the airline, Flying Tiger Cargo. And he was boasting about they had just carried Roy Rogers and his horse Trigger, (laughs) uh, would you believe, from one destination to another with great fanfare and how well Trigger travelled in that exercise. And um, anyway, it occurred to me when Len was talking to me about maybe we could take some of these dairy cattle that were being killed and send them to India and we could take them by ship. Where the most we would get on a ship would be about 30 or 40 animals. I then started my own investigations, writing letters and ringing up, firstly Flying Tiger and then another airline called TIA, both based in Los Angeles. And I put the idea to them, could we take a plane load of dairy cattle? I gave them the approximate weights. They did their studies on it and came back after about three or four weeks. This is all done by letter and telephone and thought that it could be done. So, wait a minute. Roy Rogers' horse had been transported by plane, but had many other animals, stock animals, been uh, no, transported by no, plane No, not at this in point? the volumes that I was envisaging, no. Ones and twos, yes. So some people must have thought this was just completely harebrained. Well, most people did, actually, um, but... I, I said, I think this can be done. I'm assured by the experts and into cargo airlines that had stretched EC8s, which were about the length of a 707. I thought it could be done. The The capacity of the planes was well within the frame of carrying about 215 dairy cows. What did they look like inside these DC8s? <sighs> they were just, with, imagine a plane, there's a fuselage and no seats. That was it. However, the the airlines came up with the idea that they would pad the whole inside of the aircraft. Um, They sent one of their representatives out and we developed the idea that we would put put the animals into the plane on blocks of 25. Then we we had very large um, leather belts made. They were probably about a metre deep, I suppose. And we would put in 25 animals, run a strap across the width of the of the plane and then bring in another 25 and so on. So we we the mechanics of it were falling into place. So with all of that in mind, I leased a property, a farm in the Yuyangs, which is between Melbourne and Geelong. And... Um, it turned out to be a wonderful relationship. 
and I don't think we paid a lot of rent in the end of the day. The fellow was fascinated with what we were doing. <laughs> and what, this was going to be like your cattle departure lounge or well, something? Well, it was a sort of a departure lounge, but it was actually a sorting out lounge because I, I had spent some time travelling around Victoria and lower New South Wales, talking to groups of dairy farmers, talking to rotaries and lions clubs, local radios. And we soon had about seven or eight different groups of farmers who were fascinated with this idea and were totally excited about the fact that instead of shooting animals, they could be made useful in another place. And I, I met some just quite magnificent people in that process. And they were responsible for also raising a lot of fund them, funds themselves. However, the, the big push on funding came when uh, ABC Radio in Melbourne, with Peter Couchman, a name that would resonate with some older people, he was, he was a television person with ABC and he was doing the morning show at that time. He asked me to come in and talk about what we were doing and the idea of what we were doing. And as a consequence of that interview, we had several really terrific people express an interest to assist us and give us publicity and uh, assist with funding and that sort of thing. Probably one of our biggest supporters was uh, the late Dan Murphy, who's, whose name is plastered around the country now, um, and Randall MacDonald, who was the managing director of the Age newspaper. And they, they were two people who had great influence, I suppose you'd call that, and they were instrumental in, in opening a lot of financing doors for us and helping us. So the great day came where you'd amassed the cows this first flight. How many boarded that, that first um, flight and, and where? What airport? Uh, they, at Tullamarine Airport. And um, prior to that, I had selected 220 cattle out of about the five or 600 that we had assembled. And I inseminated those cattle myself then pregnancy tested them after a couple of months. Uh, my idea being that we would get two over there for the price of one, and that's exactly what happened. <laughs> so it was 200 and something pregnant cows that boarded this 215. Plane. We put on the first stretch DC-8 at Tullamarine, and loading commenced at, uh, at 1 o'clock in the morning. Um, we had great support from the airport authorities. It was it was a mixture of support and fascination, really. <laughs> I'm not uh, surprised. You know, bloody cattle getting <laughs> rolled out on trucks, this plane getting loaded with cattle. However, it all went quite well. And what humans were on board this flight? There was the three crew, three Americans, quite fascinating personalities. I, I guess it's what you expect of, of, uh, of cargo pilots, I suppose. They all seemed sort of high-risk sort of fellows, really, you know. <laughs> But they weren't. They were lovely. They were lovely guys, and they'd put a lot of work into the takeoff and landing procedure because we had to take off and go up very, very slowly, very, very slowly, and similarly coming into land because of the moving cargo that we had, and you couldn't afford too much movement really. Um, and um, on the first, very first trip. Um, Carmel Murphy, Dan's sister, came. She was a nun in Madras at that time, and we she were, hitched a ride. So she hitched a ride. <laughs> so she was up in the up in the cabin and the jump seat, and uh, I was the other passenger. Um, I thought it important uh, that I went on the first flight, 
and I was in, um, I'm not sure what class you'd call it, but my seat was in the toilet <laughs> right right at the end of the plane. I think I've had that seat. And uh, let's call it poo class because that's exactly where I was. And there was a lot of poo being around the oh, plane from your, the cattle. Your heart must have been in your mouth. I mean, all of this planning and organising and risk and then you're taking yeah. off. It's never been done before. Look, I, I, I suppose... I was that busy, I never really had time to really think about the what-ifs. And the what-ifs would have been of a negative nature, I suppose. And I said, well, here we are, we're doing it, let's get on with it. And and that's what happened. Tell me how it was that you from the far end, the poo class of the plane, Mm. got around to check on these 215 cows as you're flying up above the Um, ocean. Well, I was uh, particularly anxious to ensure that we had no fatalities. And so I had a little flying fox rigged up on the ceiling of the plane and I would pull myself along that. (laughs) And if an animal was going down or down, I would then stop, go down and and encourage the animal to get up. How regularly did you go up and down on this flying fox? I went about for the first trip from... From Melbourne to Singapore, I must have gone up and down 50 times. I was so concerned that everything would go well, I suppose. What did the cattle think of you well, flying above them? Look, I'm just amazed, you know. They they really just stood there. They were just blew me away. They, they were just perfect. Podcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. So, Paul, you and your 215 pregnant cows and Dan Murphy's sister, the nun, you all headed firstly to Singapore. How did that landing go? That all went well. We just refuelled there. We weren't on the ground very long at all. We opened up all the, every every opening that we could open to get some fresh air in, of course, plus the air conditioning was hooked up. So we then took off from Singapore and about an hour out of Singapore, the pilot called me up to come up to the cockpit. What, on your flying fox? On my flying fox. <laughs> uh, I didn't stay in the cockpit too long because I, I was a pretty pungent sort of a <laughs> smell going around with me. However, he did say to me that cyclones were approaching Madras <gasps> and 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 at this stage Madras said, we'll go ahead, we should get down before the cyclones arrived or this massive cyclone arrived. An hour later, and Skipper called me back up again and said, um, we're going to have to divert. Now, there's this saying, I can't think of what it is, the best Best laid laid plans. Yeah, something like that. Best laid plane loans of cattle still get diverted. Still get diverted. So where are we going to go? They suggested we go to Bangalore. They'd spoken to Bangalore Air Control, who had never had a plane of that size. Like, this is a massive plane. I think it's some 
about 50 metres long. And Bangalore was a regional airport in those days, but that was where we were designated to land. And we landed uh, at about four in the morning. By 10 in the morning, there must have been 10 or 20,000 people on the exterior of the uh, airport at the fence looking in. They'd never seen a plane of this size and to know that there were cattle on the plane it was like something from outer space, really. <laughs> However, we had um, 24 hours at Bangalore, and at which time I had to secure some local food, which was some paragrass and some paddy and, um, and water, and had to carry each lot of those on my fabulous little flying fox down into each pen of cattle and would eventually sort of hand-feed them all, really. And where did you sleep that night? Did well, you stay with the cattle? interestingly enough, Carmel Murphy, to her credit, had got hold of some nuns in that town and I hadn't had any sleep for a couple of days and I went off and had a share, no, it wasn't a share, it was a bath actually, in a, um, in a convent, had a good feed. You must have been a surprising guest for I them. Was. Oh. I was a smelly guest, I can assure you that. <laughs> um, and uh, had a couple of hours sleep and... We took off for Ahmedabad in Gujarat State and landed there, unloaded all the cattle quite successfully. And what kind of uh, reception did you get in Gujarat? Massive Gujarat? reception, uh, a lot of press and, a, and that sort of thing um, and a lot of sort of needless questions, I thought, but everyone was sort of interested. I was just keen to get the animals to where they were going. Uh, the animals that we were going to offload at Madras went to the same... The farmers cooperative a place in a place called Bavala, which was quite remote in Gujarat, and the animals that were to go to Madras were then trucked after about a week after they recovered from the plane. Had all the cattle survived that they, extraordinary? One hundred percent. I was just. I reflected afterwards on how scared I probably should have been, but I just never had time to be scared. But I had, I had total belief in what we were doing and. And it worked. And how successful was that breeding program in the end? Well, I'm delighted to tell you that there are still offspring coming, and this is now 50 years <laughs> on, uh, and that cooperative milk production five to eight times higher by using our Australian cattle or offspring from that Australian cattle and crossbreeding programs. It was a highly successful exercise. But, Sarah, the the key to it, I thought, was this was a program that was being run by these local farmers. They were responsible for the results. And to me, it's what I call aid to end aid, not to create it. They were in charge and we were just giving them the conduit to improve the genetics and therefore the, the production or better production of their animals. Mm. So uh, I, uh, it was a very emotional time seeing these people expressing their delight at receiving these gifts, knowing full well what they could do with it. Mm. And uh, all of the problems that we had, and there were plenty, uh, melted away into the background. It was just great. Who did you then get a phone call from? 
Well, I actually had a phone call from Mother Teresa's organisation. So uh, she'd heard about these cows, she? had heard she? about cattle. She she had a nose for what's going on around the place, I can tell you. And um, so I, I think on my second trip there, second plane load that we took, I went and spent um, four or five days with her. What was she like? Oh, incredible. Just, in, in what well, sort of way? Well... Uh, no, she, no I, I take that back. She was just a beautiful, quiet, uh, unassuming person that had an absolute vision of what she wanted to do and she, in many respects, had no idea how she was going to do it and that she was a total visionary. She was the most incredible person, really, yeah. uh, I had some wonderful times with her. Um, How would you spend your time together? Well, I used to go to... She said, would you like to come to Mass in the mornings with me? I was staying in a scruffy little boarding house. I'll never forget it, at number nine Sutter Street it was, just around the corner. And I would go there at 5.15, 5.30, sit beside her, and then after after Mass she'd say, shall we take tea? That's the word she used. And we'd go and sit in a little room together and she would tell me about projects. She was really on the hunt for cattle. That's what she was about. And I gave her eight cows for probably one of the most joyous places I've ever been to in the world, really. And it was a a orphanage that she set up just off the end of Dum Dum Airport. Dum Dum was the name of Calcutta's airport in those days. I think it's been changed to a more <laughs> fanciful name now because of the tourists and what have you. However, John Kennedy, President Kennedy, bought her about five or six acres of land there and um, our cattle went there and she had five to 600 kids there from the streets of Calcutta from babies through to seven-year-old. She had a, what they call a go-bar gas plant going there, which was effectively extracting methane from the waste, which provided light power, etc., for the centre. And food donated from a whole lot of organisations in Calcutta. I, I was very moved by my time there. It was something to behold, was just the joy and happiness in these kids. She said to me one day, we were out there, she said, Paul, um, they've got nothing, but they've got everything. Then she followed it up. You've got everything, but you've got nothing aimed at me and our society. So it was really interesting. She said many little sayings like that. She had, she had entree to speak to every leader in the world, you know, and I, she told me this, and she said, I can, I can ring all of these people up and they do things, help help me with things. She wasn't in a boastful way. She had an agenda, and she wanted those people to help her achieve it. So you were managing many successful flights of, of cattle over to India. Correct. But what went wrong on a flight to Darwin? Uh, well, that was a very interesting exercise. We everything went well. We had about two hundred and twenty-two animals on that on that plane. Um, they were a little lighter, so we got seven or eight more on. And um, once again, all pregnancy tested in calf. And uh, the plane was loading at Tullamarine 
everything went successfully. We'd start at one in the morning and finish about 4.30, 4 o'clock, 4.30. And the lady who was representing TIA at the time, that's Trans International Airlines, who were doing the job, um, she came to me with a pretty furrowed look on her face and she said, oh, we've got a major problem. I said, what is that? We, we, we had beset with plenty of problems, but this was a significant one, obviously. Um, she said, I've just had a call, a telegram actually, is what it used to come on in those days, um, to say that the crew haven't got enough time left to get to Singapore, we'll have to reroute to Darwin, and the airline had already made adjustments for replacement crew to go to Darwin, but we would have an overlay of 24 hours. Now, what does that mean if you've got 220 cars? Well, it was just a bloody disaster, really. I, I said, well, we, we can't do that. We, we can't sit on the ground in Darwin for 24 hours in that heat. We'll have to unload the cattle. And keep them, what, just at Darwin Airport? At Darwin Airport. <laughs> well, you can't do that. And I said, why can't you? <laughs> well, we, we can't. Well, why can't you? Well, we've got no facility. Well, let's establish a facility. So she went off. She did a wonderful job. God knows how she got hold of someone in the Department of Ag in the Northern Territory, explained the situation. I then got on the phone to them and said, well, this is what I, I have to have. Otherwise, we were going to cancel the whole shipment. But the cattle were on the jolly plane. <laughs> and that was a process in itself. Imagine. So anyway... The fellow who, whose name just escapes me now, but he was just one out of the box, really. He said, OK, leave it with me. I'll ring back in an hour. Within the hour, he said, yeah, we can get a large circular pen. We can give you some shade. We can give you some water. We can give you some hay. I said, in addition to that, I'm going to require eight separate pens because I had eight lots of 25, or one was a bit over 25, so we had 222 on the flight. And I want them to be unloaded in the order that they're going to to load them again. And what this is just, they had to get all this ready in the time it took you to fly from Melbourne to Darwin, to Darwin which yeah. is what, four or five hours? Something. Probably four hours, pretty slow going. <laughs> anyway, so I insisted we had to have these pens and that was essential for the exercise. So I wasn't scheduled to go on that plane, but I just smelt trouble. So I said, well... I'm going to have to go with you. So then it was a problem, where, where am I going to sit? So anyway, because uh, I had a volunteer going who was on the in the poo class, he was in the poo class toilet. So I got a bale of hay off one of the trucks, loaded onto the plane, and I spent the trip sitting on a bale of hay talking to him. <laughs> in hay class. Yeah, and going up and down again on the, on the little flying fox. <laughs> Anyway... What happened once you made it to Darwin? All's well. We landed in Darwin and everything went smoothly. We go to the far end of the airport and, true to his word, he had established the um, the yards, had some cover, uh, had some food, had plenty of water, but no eight pens. Right. I had to work out then what we were going to do because I had to let all the cattle be unloaded all in one big pen, all had ear tags on with their numbers and the specific places they were going to. And uh, so anyway, that was sort of okay. Mm. We let them all go and it really was like McMurphy's picnic, I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> so I then went off to the only 
place I could stay at in Darwin because Tracy had just gone through um, and it was the old travel lodge. I had a shower and went to bed and said I'd be back at three o'clock. There were four fellows left in charge and they were terrific blokes. The Department of Ag, just hats off to them really. Um, but they were four characters that were left there. And anyway, I get back at three or four in the afternoon and my four buddies had been quite diligent uh, in consuming a few Darwin stubbies uh, in the heat with the appropriate effect. Um, and uh, <laughs> everything was no worries. That's no problem here. We, we can for go and find number 208. We'll find it and we'll guide it up onto the aircraft. So, no problem whatsoever. This will be a walk in the park. We finished loading about half past 11 that night. Absolute dog's breakfast, really. By that time, my mates had sobered up pretty well. And they were still a terrific bunch of guys. I take my hat off to them, really. Um, and uh, the plane then took off and I went back to the travel lodge, had a night's sleep and returned to Melbourne. So there you go. Paul, it wasn't just cows. There were other animals that you were involved in in doing these kind of mercy flights or charity flights with. What other creatures yeah, have you overseen? I wouldn't call them mercy. I wouldn't call them charity. I'm not a fan of the word charity either, really. Like, I saw these as the agency. People had to make a better life for themselves, by themselves. That was my motivation, I suppose. In answer to your question, I... I talked to the Rotary Club in Sydney one day and um, at the end of the talk, which really went quite well, um, a gentleman came and said, oh, I, I have one of the largest poultry breeding operations in Australia. I'd been in Dhaka in Bangladesh probably six months before and had noted that every, every village had poultry running around. They were inbred, outbred, and all sorts of bread, and they were tiny little things that produced a handful of eggs once a year. And it spawned the idea, when I asked him, what do you do with the cockerels? He said, they're, they're not used at all. They keep the females, they sex them at day old, uh, and there was no use for the cockerels. So I said, ah, OK. So they just kill them on the yep. in the poultry farm? Yep. OK. So I then spoke to Roger Adams, who was the head of Tyre at the time, and he said, yeah, we could probably do something for you. Um, he knew there was no money in it for him. But anyway, he he then, I said, give me the best packaging company uh, in Australia, cardboard so, box. So now the plan was to take these cockerels that would have yeah. been killed yep. over to Bangladesh. To, to Bangladesh. Virtually is just one or two days old. Um, then went to Bangladesh and set up, had the government set up a a growing out property just out of Dhaka. And all of this was done quite quickly, really. And so these cockerels were then flown from uh, Sydney to Bangkok, Bangkok to Dhaka, and spent time growing out, being fed and growing out till they could be released. We then ended up releasing cockerels into a village, just letting them go, really. What, just like opening a box and...? Virtually, that was it, yes. And what, what happened to them once they the were...? The objective being, well, what happened to many, they found their way straight into a pot because they were nice big birds. It didn't take long, however, for them to realise that if they could crossbreed with the local hens, you would get a five to eight times increase in egg numbers, a much larger egg, a much larger bird, consequentially, for eating. So... 
it's self-generated. It took about a year to get going and then just spawned really. And once again, they were in control of the project. It was just wonderful to see really, I must say. But less carefully managed breeding program than with the cattle. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, it was, but it was a bit of mayhem, Survival really. Survival of the fittest with the cockerels yeah, at that point. Yeah, like these things were not... The way I'm speaking about it is like they were just walks in the park. We had massive problems all the time, problems, but, you know, I guess I often say on these sorts of things that uh, if you're not having some sort of problems, you're not up to much, really. Do you get frazzled or, or cranky when problems arise or how, how do you react? Well, no, I think you just have to see what's going wrong, see what can be learned from it, and then put that into practice. So chickens to Bangladesh, cattle to India. Uh, we sent some sheep to Tanzania, same same principle. They were very, very well organised, and that was under the auspices of um, a local group in Tanzania that was semi-government sponsored, but it was a great success. We sent bees to the Philippines, bees. for goodness sake. Yes, bees, of all things. Well, they were probably the easiest to transport, were yeah, they? Yeah, well, they, they they were pretty small. You could get a lot of them. <laughs> and um, I also sent some cattle to uh, a project out of Wyndham and WA. Yeah, that, that also went particularly well. In, uh, in Bangladesh, Paul, you came across another Australian man who was volunteering, who made an impression on you. Tell me about yes, Fred Hyde. Um, Fred Hyde is one of the more remarkable people I've ever met in my life, really. A fairly unheralded Australian, you would say. Fred lived in the town of Warwick in, in southern Queensland and he ran a chainsaw business there for most of his working life. He got to 65 and, and in his words to me, he said, you know, when I get to 65, Paul, I, I was part of the local group in Warwick that built the old people's home and thought, well, I'm going to end up in the old people's home just like the rest of them. Fred had other ideas, of course, and he, he was the most interesting person, a very quiet, unassuming person, but totally driven sort of a person, really. Fred found a complete new life when he got going to Bangladesh, I must say. But what he did identify, which was very, very interesting, really, he he decided, in his wisdom, after a couple of years there, that education was the key. And this is a very remote island, Bowler Island, in the Bay of Bengal, subject to massive floods, cyclones. It's only about two or three, or a metre or so above sea level, in some cases below that, actually. And he started building schools. I went there once to uh, see him in, in a little area called Five Dock, actually it was called, and he physically built the school himself. Well, today, Fred Hyde Schools still goes very successfully and there are some 40-odd schools and they teach 7,000 children a day plus kindergartens. Quite remarkable. Fred died when he was 90, I think 93, so it's not long ago, but there is a group of about a dozen volunteers scattered around Australia that run the organisation Fred Hyde Schools. They're all volunteers. They employ local teachers, I think at a rate of $200 a month Australian, and it is just one of the giant successful operations. Once again... Educating people, education is the key to 
people's survival, educating these people to go on and do useful things mm. in their lives. Uh, I'll never forget Fred Hyde. He's just a, a magic man. And it's I have caught up with some of his people over the last few weeks and uh, they're just a wonderful, driven group of people. So he had this huge legacy through this decision at 65 yes. after he retired to, to go yeah, and do yes. something else. What about you, Paul? Do you think about the legacy of all those lives you must have impacted through no, those animals? No, not really. Um, no, I, I don't. I've, I've done other things in, in business subsequently. Uh, most importantly, I've had the most wonderful family of five boys and a beautiful, beautiful, amazing wife. I couldn't have done any of this without Adrian's help, guidance and total backing. Amazing person really what about what about animals given that you've always loved them and and been living around them since you were a little tyke what animals do you have in your life now um we had a farm in the mary valley and we mainly horses there but really i don't have anything it's the first time we haven't had any animals and i think a dog's probably upcoming (laughs) these days but we're enjoying life i suppose you'd say we're in the in the twilight of it but you know life's there to be lived and we love every day. Paul, it's been a real honour to hear some of your extraordinary adventures. Thank you so much for being my guest on Conversations. Thank you, I've enjoyed it immensely. Paul McVerry was my guest on Conversations today. I'm Sarah Konoski. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Konoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Attention, passengers. Uh, Hello, Conversations listeners. Jonathan Green here from RN's Return Ticket. On our show, we take you on Journeys of the Mind, no passport required. We'll chat with some fine guides in destinations you'd love to travel to. Come travel with us here on Return Ticket. You'll find all the episodes on the ABC Listen app.